Thank you, Paul. She looks as if she's been the victim of a vicious mugging. She has been beaten within an inch of her life. Her body is covered with terrible wounds, but they go uncared for and untended. Her condition is deteriorating. She needs help quickly. And yet her pain and her misery are self-inflicted. She's brought all of this upon herself, and she does nothing to put a stop to it. Well, that's the picture drawn for us in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. I hope you still have your Bibles open at pages uh, 685 and 686. Um, And uh, we'll go through this passage, I think, quite carefully uh, together. But who is this poor, desperate woman? Well, verse 7 tells us that we are looking not at an individual, but at a nation and a city. That nation is Judah, and that city is Jerusalem. The year is 700 years before Christ, or thereabouts. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been invaded and conquered by the mighty power of Assyria. And now the southern kingdom of Judah has been coming under increasing attack. God's special people, to whom so much has been given and from whom so much has been expected, is being threatened with obliteration. (coughs) Verse 7 spells it out. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. And what about Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion, the jewel in the crown, the city of David? What about Jerusalem? Well, verse 8 says that Jerusalem is left like a shelter in a vineyard. Imagine a field full of vines, and uh, at the beginning of the, of the harvest season, they build a shelter for, the, uh, for those who can attend um, uh, the harvest and perhaps do some storage in there. But now that shelter is derelict. And there's nothing left in the field to protect. That's what Jerusalem is like. Just a derelict wooden hut. And then in verse 9, notice please the mention of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those two cities were bywords for utter godlessness and for complete destruction. To mention Judah in the same breath as them would have been shockingly offensive to those who consider themselves to be God's people. These then are the symptoms and a very dire situation it is. But if they are the symptoms, what is the diagnosis? What's gone wrong here? Why has Judah fallen on such hard times? Is it just a case of bad luck, of being in the wrong place at the wrong time? Is it that poor little innocent Judah has been overwhelmed by an evil and aggressive neighbor? Well, no, it's not as simple as that at all. Verse 4 tells us that they, Judah, are a sinful nature, a people loaded with guilt. 
a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. And the heart of all this evil doing is the breakdown of a relationship. In verses 2 and 4, the Lord is saying this, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. But it's even worse than that. Judah are not only children who have rebelled against a father, they're also seen as a wife who has been unfaithful to her husband. She has become a harlot, a prostitute, if you look at verse 21. We sense here in these verses not only the damage that God's people have caused themselves, but the pain that God himself feels as a father feels pain over a rebellious child, as a husband feels pain over an adulterous wife. Now the breakdown of their relationship with God has led to a breakdown in their relationships with one another. Verse 21, the city that once was filled with justice is now teeming with murder. And in verse 23, we Verse 23, we read of corruption in high places. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. How often in Scripture do we find God pleading the case of the widows and the fatherless? and complaining that his people will not do the same. Now, under these circumstances of rebellion against God and utter injustice in their society, under these circumstances, their religion serves no useful purpose whatsoever. Look at verses 11 and following. Their sacrifices give God no pleasure. Their visits to the temple are just a trampling of his courts, verse 12. Their offerings are meaningless, verse 13. Their meetings are detestable, and their holy days are a wearisome burden, verse 14. Their prayers, be they never so many, fall on deaf ears. They pray, and God sticks his fingers in his ears. That, then, is the diagnosis. God's people have forsaken him, rebelled against him, and in doing so, they have ceased to be a decent, fair, just society. And their religion has become a sham. That's the diagnosis. What's the prescription now? Well, if the root of the problem, verse 4, was that they have turned their backs on the Lord, then they need to reverse this and turn back to him. There must be a change of behaviour. Verse 16 and following is a whole run of commands, of pleas. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. 
seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. In other words, purify yourselves before God, reorder your personal lives, and set about the transformation of your society. There must be a change of behavior. But then we see that in order for there to be a change of behavior, there must be a change of mind. See how the divine judge appeals to those he is accusing of wrongdoing. Verse 18, you probably knew already. It's a beautiful, a beautiful verse. After all that God has said by way of complaint to his people, he then says this, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. I think the mention of scarlet and crimson are not so much for their redness associated with blood, although that may be the case, but because in a a day when dyes were expensive and difficult to produce, these were two deep dyes, very fast dyes. So for God to say those colours can be washed out means they can be washed out thoroughly. White as snow, white as wool. God's people have been accused of ignorance and stupidity, of not knowing or understanding, verse 3. Even the ox knows his master and the donkey his owner's manger. If dumb animals know what's good for them, You, intelligent human beings that you are supposed to be, need to know and to think. And so God pleads with them to think, to reason with him, to come to their senses. Verses 19 and 20 carry a stark choice. If, God says, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. By the time we reach verse 25, judgment still looms. God will not simply mention justice with a view to swiftly moving on. No, judgment still looms. But the surprise in verse 25 is that judgment is described in terms of purification rather than in terms of destruction. A menacing act, I will turn my hand against you, becomes an act of mercy. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. And then by the time we reach verses 26 and following, there is a glorious prospect of justice restored, of God's people being put back on a right footing with him and with one another. I will restore, says the Lord, your judges as in days of old, your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterwards you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. And yet the chapter ends on a note of uncertainty. Will they or won't they? Will they go the way of judgment or go the way of the hope that God sets before them? 
Well, history records, you know, that it was both. That judgment, especially in the form of exile, would happen. But hope glowed even through that. And beyond exile, there was return and redemption. Well, that's a bird's eye view of the first chapter of Isaiah, the first in a series that we were doing on this, the greatest of the Old Testament writing prophets. And as we look forward to the rest of Isaiah, not every chapter, but selections of them, with its wonderful prophecies about the suffering servant, and then the ultimate hope of a new heaven and a new earth, by the time we reach the last chapters, there is nevertheless already here, in the very first chapter, much for us as God's people today. I'd like to pick out just one thing before we proceed with our service. The one thing I'd like to pick out for us this evening, for our consideration from Isaiah chapter 1, is this. Sunday activity and weekday accountability must go hand in hand. God is not interested in what we do on a Sunday if we are not prepared to be accountable for our attitudes and behaviours on the other days of the week. Christian discipleship is defined by our attitudes and behaviours towards others at least as much as uh, as, as it is defined by our doctrines and our liturgies. The New Testament does not excuse us from this solemn responsibility. James chapter 1 and verse 27 says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So that's why we have decided to go no further with our service this evening until we have dealt with this issue and faced up to it. No amount of coming to church, of singing God's praises, of saying our prayers, of offering our gifts, of giving our time, of attending meetings, of studying the Bible, of reading good Christian literature, none of these things serve any purpose at all. Certainly cannot take the place of this. These are all worse than useless if our hearts are not right with God, and if we are not prepared to show in our actions that we are learning to hate what God hates, and we are learning to love what God loves. Our Heavenly Father has a particular concern for the poorest, the most oppressed, the weakest, the most vulnerable, and he requires the same concern in us, his children. So when we come to make our confession in a few minutes' time, will we do so with a realistic sense of our many failings before God, even our outright rebellion against him, but also with a deep sense of his unspeakable love and grace, a father longing for his wayward children to come home, more willing to forgive us than we are to ask for that forgiveness. When we sing our praises this evening, will we seek to do so with hearts aglow with love that longs to express itself in acts of justice and compassion? And when we offer our prayers this evening, 
Will we do so with an attitude that says, Lord, bring your love and joy to pe- uh, and peace to bear on this world, this church, and on these individuals for whom we pray? And may we ourselves be part of the answer to those prayers. And it all comes back to our relationship with our loving Father. Father, child, husband, wife. That's the nature of the relationship between God and his people that he desires with us and from us. Let me end with a true story. Um, One Sunday morning in February 1903, a service was being held at a chapel in Wales for young people. And the leader of that service asked if anybody had a testimony that they would like to bring. A 14-year-old girl, whose name was Florrie Evans, stood up and with a trembling voice said simply this, I love the Lord Jesus with all of my heart. And that simple testimony was, as far as historians can tell, one of the main sparks, one of the earliest sparks, a current of electricity that began something which was an amazing time of spiritual awakening in Wales that lasted about two years. 100,000 people came to Christ over that period of time. And not just that, but um, uh, long-standing feuds between people, between families, between neighbours, between churches were resolved. Money that had been, would have been uh, spent on, on, on drink and on gambling was channeled in charitable directions. It's said that the, uh, the pit ponies down in the mines couldn't understand, were confused and couldn't understand their masters because their masters weren't swearing at them anymore. There were changes in attitude and behaviour across that country 100,000 people out of a population of two or three million just in two, a couple of years, beginning, and the point is this, beginning with a change of relationship and the recovery of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we want to serve you not out of fear of judgment and punishment, but because we know we are your children, your church is your wife. Recover in us, kindle in us a spark of love and kindle it into a flame that burns with love for you and may that flame burn with such a brightness and such a warmth that it brings light and warmth to all around us as we seek to bring your mind of love, compassion and goodwill, not just today, but in the week and the weeks ahead. Amen.